following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, what we're going to do this morning is, is start kind of a new series, uh, although it is actually an old series. If you cast your mind all the way back, all the way back pre-COVID, all the way back before, you know, when the world was wonderful, before the fall, um, at beginning, of, beginning of last year, uh, we started the series in the book of Isaiah, and we got a little way through that series, we only got to about chapter 11, and then COVID hit and we went into lockdown, and so we changed tact at that point and went into the book of Acts, and we stayed in Acts for the rest of the year. What I thought we'd do for the first part of this year is circle back to Isaiah again, Lord willing, right, COVID permitting, uh, that we could maybe make a bit more traction through, through this book. So it, it might be familiar to you, or if you, if you weren't around at that time, or maybe it's just been too long, that's fine, we won't assume anything, but we're going to come back and look at this book of the Bible, Isaiah, just for the first few months, for the for the next few months of the year. And what we'll do, Isaiah is a huge book. It's one of the biggest books in the Bible, 66 chapters. So we're going we're gonna to jump a fair distance in Isaiah and, and focus most of our time in the last third of the book. Okay, so we're going to look from, from chapter 40 onwards. We're going to be in chapter 40 of Isaiah this morning. If you want to start getting your Bible out, if you've got that, I always encourage you to bring your Bible to church. Or if you've got it on your device, that's totally fine. We're cool with that here. Just, just open it up. And if you can have it in front of you, that, that's really helpful. Uh, and this last third of Isaiah is a much more hopeful part of the book. The first couple of thirds of Isaiah is pretty gloomy. It's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of um, rebuke there. You get into that final third from chapter 40 onwards, it gets a lot more hopeful and a lot more forward-looking and there's renewal and there's restoration and there's joy and there's all these wonderful themes. So that's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time over the, over the next little while. We can only do selected passages, so I want to encourage you to read Isaiah if you haven't done that or perhaps just from chapter 40 onwards. Uh, because we'll just be able to hit some of those passages. But if you can be tracking through in your own Bible reading time, that's really, really helpful. You'll bring more awareness to these mornings and to these messages if you do that. So this morning, we're in Isaiah 40. We're going to read a passage uh, from about, uh, well, from verse 12. Jill Shaw is going to come and read that for us. Thanks, Jill. Morena, church family. Listen to this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or the, with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who, had, who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine sands. Lebanon, with all of its trees, is not sufficient for the altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will we compare God? To what image will you liken him? 
As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens, who created all these? He who brings the starry host out one by one and calls each forth, calls forth each of them by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. <coughs> Thanks, Jill. So uh, last year, our, our oldest son, Josh, graduated from primary school. And uh, that, that's something you do these days. You graduate from primary school. Back in my day, you just stopped. But now you graduate. Uh, and so he, they had a, a graduation ceremony night. And I didn't go along, but Anna did. And they, so all the kids at this, at this graduation night uh, in Josh's year group, all the year, year six kids, they all got up and they sung a, sung a song. And it was a contemporary song by 660 called The Greatest. And I thought I'd just read you the chorus, read you the words of that chorus. Uh, this is, if you can imagine all these year six kids singing this, top of their voice. Can't stop believing I'm the greatest. Heart's breaking till I know I made it. I'll never know what second place is. No pain, no doubt, till the lights go out. And I thought, as I, as I thought about those words, it tells you something about our culture, I think. It's a bit of a window, isn't it? Into, into modern culture. I think it tells you that we live in, in, in our Western culture at a time when we're totally obsessed with our own personal greatness. Is that right? We're totally intoxicated with our own greatness and really what we want is to be the greatest and really what we want is to make sure our kids know they're the greatest and that they are number one and they don't need anyone else. They don't need to depend on anyone else. They don't need community. They don't, they don't need support around. They don't need to look to anyone else. They don't need any other things. Uh, they, just, they just need to know they are the individual greatest person, the most awesome person who has ever lived on the earth. And they just need everyone else to know how great they are. That's basically it, right? You, you are amazing and awesome, and everyone else needs to know how awesome you are. And, and I'm all, all for helping kids have, have high dreams and hopes and, and affirming them and building them up, but I think we've become so obsessed with this idea of personal, individual greatness and glory, and often fame is what goes along with that. It's become like a cultural obsession. And I wonder if in view of that, maybe at this particular cultural moment, we need a healthy dose of Isaiah 40 that maybe we need a text like this more now than, than we have in ages past, that we need to come back to a passage like this in which Isaiah is basically saying, just for a minute, can you get your eyes off yourself and lift up your eyes and focus not on your greatness, but on the greatness of God. 
Can we just try for a minute to lift our eyes off how awesome we think we are and how amazing my life is and my need to have everyone else like me and just let's lift up our eyes and focus ourselves on how huge and how awesome and how great God is. That's the heart of this text. And maybe if we did that, we might come away with a, a bit of a healthier view of ourselves anyway. We, we might see ourselves a little bit more rightly if we see ourselves in view of God. Maybe, maybe that's possible. So it, it's, a, it's a pretty simple thing that Isaiah is doing here in this passage. There, there's a lot of beautiful language and beautiful images, but it really comes down to this. And this is, this is the heart of, of the sermon, really, this morning. It's pretty simple. is just painting a huge picture of the greatness of God. That's, that's really what Isaiah is doing. He, he's lifting up our eyes to see how great God is. And, and that's all I want us to do this morning, is just to think about and contemplate just how huge and how awesome God is. Are we up for that? Do we feel like we can do that even on a hot Sunday morning? Just to think for a while on the glory and the greatness of God. And I think if, if we would walk out of here today, just maybe catching our breath a little bit more at, at the wonder of the vastness of God, this text will have done its work in our lives. That's the point. Okay? So let's dive in. Let's have a look at some of the details. So what, what Isaiah is doing here is he's simply comparing God to a range of different things. He's drawing these comparisons, if you can possibly draw comparisons, between God and, and various, uh, various other things. And the first thing he does is to compare God with creation. So in verse 12, he says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, what he's doing there, he's using this thing called an anthropomorphism. It's a big word, throw it around at parties. But all it means is to, to give human-like qualities to someone or something that is not human. So you describe a, a non-human thing as if it were human. In this, in this case, giving human-like qualities like hands to God, describing God as if he's got hands. Now, we know God doesn't have hands, okay? I'm not saying God's got hands, right? We're all right with this. But Isaiah is describing God as if he does have hands in order to say something about who he is, in order to say something about his greatness and his glory. And in this case, the image is that God can hold the waters, all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Now, just get out your hand for a minute. Let's try this, okay? Get that hand out. Now, form that cup in your hand, the hollow of your hand, that's the little cup space there. Now think about how much water you think you could hold in the hollow of your hand. I, I tried, I did an experiment, you'll be pleased to know, it's very empirical, uh, and I, I poured a tablespoon of water into the hollow of my hand, and that was, about, that was about right, I could hold a tablespoon of water, and then I tried another tablespoon, and it kind of oozed out you know, through the, through the gaps in your fingers there. So I concluded that I was not God. That was my scientific experiment. So I can hold about a tablespoon of water in the hollow of my hand. And here's what Isaiah is saying. For God, he can take all the waters, the oceans across the surface of the earth. About 70% of the earth's surface is water. He can take all of that, all the vastness of however many billions of liters of water, and he just holds all that in the cup of his hand. That's just no big thing to God. He can just hold that just like that. All the oceans, the lakes, the rivers of the earth, God's like, I've just got it all there. Just holding it there. It's not huge to him. It's incredibly small. That's how great God is. So 
Isaiah goes on and he gives us another image. At the end of verse 12, he says, or next one, uh, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Now, get that same hand out again that you had before. The breadth of your hand, okay? That's, that's the span of your hand. So the, if you've got it fully outstretched, the measurement from the tip of your pinky to the tip of your thumb, that's your hand breadth or span, all right? Calculate what you think that is. Mine is 23.5 centimeters. That's my hand span. So with the span of your hand, what can you measure? I can just about measure my Bible, the spine of my Bible. Not quite, actually. I can just about get that. I could measure an average size book with the span of my hand. And what about God? Isaiah says with the span of his hand, he can measure the heavens. And that simply means the entire universe, the entire cosmos, span of his hand, just like that. We don't even know how big the universe is. We've got no idea. We, we know our little corner of it, right? We know our, our little neighborhood, our little solar system, because we see some pictures of it brought to us by the Hubble telescope. So we know our little neck of the woods, and we know that there's already hundreds of solar systems that make up our galaxy, the Milky Way. And then Hubble has seen at least 125 billion galaxies that make up the universe. Now, that's just what Hubble thinks it can see, which is just a fraction of all that there is. 125 billion galaxies, hundreds of solar systems, and then galaxies, and then the universe, the cosmos. It is an unfathomable, mind-bendingly huge array that God has created. And yet Isaiah is saying for God, he just puts out his hand and he's got it. He's got it. He's, he, the whole universe, he just puts his hand there, thumb to pinky, he's measured it. Just like that. That's how massive God is. That's how vast God is. That is how huge the God whom we're serving and worshiping this morning. This is the same God. He's here with us this morning. And yet he puts out his hand and he measures the breadth of the heavens. This is the greatness of God. All right, we'll keep going. You're not impressed yet, are you? Keep working on you. All right, next image. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales. Think of the most majestic mountains that you've ever seen. Reminds me of a road trip that we did through the Canadian Rockies a couple of years ago. And the beauty of these incredible mountains, just these sheer rock faces that just stretch up thousands of meters into the sky. Uh, Snow-capped mountains, and they feed down into these beautiful glacier-fed lakes. And you, you're just dwarfed by them. You just get that sense of incredible smallness compared to the hugeness of these mountains. Think of the mountains that you've seen, those that you've stood at the foot of, maybe those you've climbed. And then you gather up all of the, the mountain ranges across the whole earth. You think about the Rockies, you think about the Andes, you think about the Himalayas, you bring them all together, and God says, I, I just put them on my bathroom scales. All of those mountains, that every, you know, that the mass is incalculable. And yet for God, he just gathers all that up and he says, no, I've just, I can just put that on, my, on a set of scales. That's nothing. We are, we are dwarfed. We're overwhelmed by that kind of hugeness. But it's the opposite for God. He looks at that and it's just infinitesimally small. He can just put it all on a set of bathroom scales. That's how mighty, that is how grand, that is how glorious God is. You see what Isaiah is doing? Just building this picture, building this picture of creation that is dwarfed 
by the hugeness of God. We are dwarfed by creation, but creation in turn is dwarfed by God. And then he says, down in 15, verse 15, he starts talking about the nations of the earth. He's talked about creation, and now he starts comparing God to the nations. He says, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. It's a great image, isn't it? You stay with that image of the scales. And you think just, just a little bit of dust gathering on, on a set of scales. So dust, that's insignificant on scales. If you've got a little bit of dust there, that's not going to add anything to the weight, is it? You imagine yourself walking into the fruit and veggie shop and you get your produce and walk up to the counter and they start weighing it and you say, oh no, hang on, can you wipe the dust off please? I don't want to pay for the dust. Get rid of that dust first, I'm not paying for that. That'd be crazy. But from God's perspective, he is saying you take all the nations of the earth, you could take the entire population of the earth, billions and billions, over 7 billion I think people, on the face of the earth, 195 nations, official nations, and, and in God's mind and in God's eyes, they are dust. That's the dust gathering on the scales. We look at these, the vast sea of humanity. We think about billions of people. It's hard to wrap your head around that kind of number, the mass of humanity that inhabits this planet. We think of massive, powerful nations, India, China, the US, and so on. These are great and mighty nations. And yet God says, no, 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 not to me. They're just dust. That's just a little bit of dust gathering on the scales. That's the greatness of God. Are you getting the picture? And then he goes to talk about the rulers of the earth. He's talked about the nations, and then he focuses in on the, on the rulers of these nations. Down in verse 23, he brings the princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground and he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. He's, the image, he's just talking about a spindly little plant. Just think about some, some little plant that it has no roots. I think of um, that tumbleweed stuff that, you know, drifts along the beach. You know, little spindly stuff when you're out at the beach in summer and you just see it sort of rolling on by. Those little spindly plants, tumbleweed. It's just, you know, it's, got, it's not much to it. Carries a few seeds, I think, but there's not much, not much there. And God says, that, that's how I see the rulers of nations. That's how I see the most powerful people on the face of the earth. You know, we look at some of these people that lead massive, powerful nations, Russia, the UK, Germany, India, the US. We, and we look at these world leaders, and we see people of immense power. right? And they are powerful people. From our perspective, these are people, they, they command huge militaries, they oversee massive economies. They make decisions, and those decisions reverberate around the world. We are affected, and we are influenced by these leaders and these people of power, and we can be full of awe. But God says, no, no, to me, these leaders are like tumbleweed. From God's perspective, they're these little spindly plants that just float along. There's no, there's no true power there, says God. They only, they only have power because I've given them their authority. That's why Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, he said, you, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you from, from above. God gives earthly rulers the authority that they have. They only lead because he enables them to lead. All of their power ultimately comes from him. And before him, they are totally powerless. 
It goes for every, every ruler who has ever lived, every, every president, every leader of every great army, every head of state, every king, every emperor. You think down through history, great figures of history, whether it's Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, whoever you want to name, these great figures of history, huge influential leaders, whether for good or bad, and God is saying they're just, they're just nothing. They're just tumbleweed to me. And they might seem incredibly powerful to us, but one day, one day, these, every one of these rulers will stand before God and all of their great power will disappear. All of it will just fade away. And these pe- people that felt they had so much power, we thought they had so much power in this life, they'll realize they have nothing before the King of Kings. Before the Lord of Lords, their power will just melt away and God alone will be seen as the truly great, truly glorious, truly awesome king. These rulers are just tumbleweed in God's eyes. So the picture keeps building and building and building. And then let me, let me give you one more. Isaiah kind of circles around in uh, verse 26 and he comes all the way back to creation. He loves talking about creation. And he gives this final image. He talks about the stars. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Have you had that uh, experience recently where you've been out of Auckland and you get out of the city lights and so you don't have lampposts everywhere and you're at, at night, on a cloudless night, you just look up have you done that? And, you, and sometimes you, without even meaning, you just sort of look up and then suddenly it just takes your breath away. You see this vast canopy of stars that we don't see in the city because of all the lights here, all the haze. But you get outside the city, you look up, it's just this incredible panoramic vista of stars. And we only see just a tiny little fraction of all the stars that are there, billions and billions of stars in our galaxy and billions and billions of galaxies across the universe. And yet, God knows every single one of them. Every single star, God knows by name. God has named every single one of those billions and billions and billions and billions of stars. Amazing. We could barely name our own children. I didn't have enough names for them. Actually, we did. We were fine. But, you know, you're sort of thinking of names that you like. And, but God is like billions and billions of stars. And he's, he knows them. He knows them like a shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them like, you know, your closest friends and family. God knows the stars. And he has put every single one of them exactly where he's wanted it in the sky. So we know some names, don't we? We, we know the Southern Cross. We know Orion, we see these stars. You see the, the, the beautiful stars of Orion, those three at the bottom, hey, that look like they're perfectly spaced. Who's put them there? From God's celestial throne, he says, I have arranged the stars exactly as I've wanted them to be. I know them all by name. He leads them out in great procession, as it were, every night. He is the God who has spoken, and the stars have come into being, every single one of them known intimately. And personally, by their creator. This is God. Same God that we serve. The same God who's here today. The same God that you talk to in your own personal time of Bible reading. That's the same God who has breathed out the stars. Just try to get your head around that. So Isaiah, is, he's doing his best, just like I'm doing my best, to try and build this picture 
and try and put image upon image upon image and build up the sense of, of the greatness of who God is. The problem is, ultimately, you can have all these images and you can have all these pictures, but even these things will never get you to God, will they? These things will never get you to the greatness of God. It's not like, well, if we really knew exactly how big the universe was and we actually could measure it, then we'd know how big God's hand was. You know, that's not going to work. Just because you could put some metrics around it, you haven't suddenly calculated God. It's not like you can just abstract yourself to God's greatness, that if you just keep going up the ladder of greatness, you get to the top, the greatest thing you could possibly imagine, that must be God. It doesn't work like that. God's outside of all of that. He's outside of your categories to try and define him. This is where it gets really mind-bendingly, hugely weird, is you come up with some word like greatness to try and describe God, and immediately he defies it because he's not great, because that's a word. That's a word that I'm using, that Isaiah uses to talk about God, but God's beyond language. He's beyond speech. There is no word in any tongue, in any dialect that could ever describe who God ultimately is. He is other. He is beyond. He is outside of any category that we could ever use to describe him. He is just inexplicably glorious. He's incomprehensibly huge. He is unfathomably great. And even now I'm reaching for the language to try and explain him, but it can only ever get us a fraction of the way. God is just outside and beyond any ways that we can describe him. But we're left with these images and words that maybe just give us a little bit more of a glimpse and help us lift up our eyes a little more than we were to see the living God, to see the everlasting God, that we would fall on our knees and worship him. Now, let me give you one more verse, uh, focus on one more verse that tells us one more thing about God. And to me, this is the greatest thing of all. This is the most phenomenal thing about who God is. And it's in verse 29. Have a look at this. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. This is, this is huge. Because what Isaiah is saying is, here is this utterly transcendent God, lives in unapproachable light. No eye has seen him. No one can ever see him. And yet this God has looked upon this tiny little speck of dust called earth. And then he's, he's stooped down to take regard for these little human creatures running around on this planet. And then he's come all the way down to your life. And he said, I care about you. And I know you personally. And I've made you, and I love you, and I want you to know me, and I want to lift you up. And when you're weak, I want to give you strength, my strength. And when you're powerless, I want to give you my power. That, that to be honest, that blows my mind more than all these descriptions. We can talk about the stars and the planets and the rulers and the nations. That's amazing. What blows my mind is that that God would love me. That, I just, that, I just cannot even begin to wrap my mind around that. That that God, this God would take account of me. That he, would, that he would receive our worship? That he would allow me to address him? God, we bowl into God's presence, you know, like it's nothing. You realize who we're dealing with here? The God of the stars, the God of the universe, and yet he welcomes us because he says, I love you and I want to come alongside you and I want to lift you up. The same God who created time, that God then entered into time, took on humanity, and died on a cross. I just don't know that we can ever fathom that. We can sing the words, can't we? We can say the prayers. I just, we will spend our lives and all eternity trying to fathom the depth of that 
truth. That that God, that same God died on a cross and took our sin upon himself so that then he could come to you now and say, are you weary? Let me lift you up. Are you lowly? Are you broken? Are you hurting? Let me come alongside you. Let me lead you. Let me shepherd you. Are you feeling weak? Let me take some of the power that breathed creation into being and just pour that into your life. This is who God is. This is our God. This is the living God. And the promise that chapter ends with is those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength, rise up with wings like eagles, walk and not grow tired, run and not grow weary. That's the promise of the everlasting God, an incredible promise to hold on to. So I, I pray and I hope, church family, that we can, we can lift up our eyes a little bit, maybe get our eyes off our own amazing individual greatness for just a minute and lift our eyes up to see a little bit more of who God is. If there's one of those images maybe that you could hold in your heart this week, if there's, if there's one word, maybe one phrase from that, that you could just lift up your eyes and get a little bit more of the gravity, the weightiness of the glory of God. Let's increase our vision of the greatness of God. But let's do that with that awareness that the same God has come near to us in Jesus Christ, wrapped his arms around us and loved us like a father. That is unbelievable. This transcendent God is also incredibly imminent and incredibly intimate with us. And he treats us with tenderness and with gentleness. Let's hold both of those things together. Let's never lose sight of the bigness of God, but let's never allow that to stop us from running to him as his children, running into his arms. We don't need to fear him, not in the sense of being frightened of him. No, he welcomes us. He welcomes us with open arms. So let's run towards him. He is our God. He is here. He loves us. He's waiting for us. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Father God, even the fact that I can speak words to you now is amazing. And I'm sorry, Lord, for the times that I take it for granted and assume maybe it's no big thing. But we are just in awe of your presence and just in awe of who you are. Lord, there's, there's really nothing left but for us just to worship you to express our gratitude to you. God, I think of the words of the Old Testament. What is man that you're mindful of us? What are human beings that you would care for us? And yet, you've crowned us with glory and honor. And we thank you, God, for that. You never had to, but you have. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to us in such kindness and gentleness, even though you are the very nature of the Father. So help us to worship you, God, but also to be welcomed into your arms as our Father. We thank you. We love you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.